one more week in the Sermon on the Mount to close out this thing that we've been going after for the better part of roughly three months now. If you've been around from the very beginning, we've, we've talked about the, the fact that the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five through seven, it's the lengthiest section of uninterrupted red letter text in all of the Bible. Jesus's proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, God's establishment of his reign over this broken humanity in the person of Jesus Christ himself who shows up on this mountainside with this crowd of people. As we've talked about throughout this series from the very beginning, Jesus is the king having come to satisfy the heart-piercing demands of the law on behalf of sinners like you and me. He's the king having come to establish a new covenant people on the basis of his broken body and shed blood. He's the king having come to embed his will deep within the hearts of his people, filling us with his spirit so that we might sing with our hearts and our lives this song of the kingdom that he's been proclaiming for the better part of three chapters now. A far more beautiful song than, than that of the scribes and Pharisees as we've seen because Jesus's kingdom song is one of a righteousness that works its way from the inside out as Jesus comes after our hearts, exposing our deeply rooted heart level intentions and motivations, exposing our pride, our selfish ambitions, bringing us to our knees by God's grace in a poverty of spirit so that we might be astonished and overwhelmed by that very grace and might live in light of it more deeply fulfilling this kingdom ethic of love that Jesus has been talking about. One step in front of the other to get that gospel account word picture, leaving our nets daily as Jesus declares, follow me. This morning marks the end of the series as we go just a few verses deeper into Matthew's gospel account than one might expect with a series like this. But I trust that it'll be well worth it as we see the Sermon on the Mount become the Sermon on the Move. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be in the last couple of verses of that chapter and we'll move into the first few verses of chapter eight by the time all's said and done. If you don't have a Bible, I think there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and, and use it uh, during your time with us this morning. If you don't own a Bible, it's yours. Take it. Merry Christmas. Let me, uh, let me pray for us and, and we'll get to work because we've got, we got a little ground to cover this morning. As Jesus himself taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, that we could even begin a prayer with those words is mind-boggling. To declare you our Father is to declare ourselves to be your sons and daughters, siblings with one another. That's only possible by the cross of Jesus Christ that welcomes us into a family by God's grace through faith. And yet our Father in heaven, that the earth is your footstool, that you are in control of all things, that you are mighty, that you are powerful, that you are king. I pray that we would see the complex beauty of who you are all the more for our time in the scriptures this morning. Holy Spirit, we need you. Would you awaken our hearts, our minds, open our eyes to, to see, to hear, to receive all that you have for us this morning. I pray that we would walk out of this place encouraged, Pray that we would walk out of this place comforted. I pray that we would walk out of this place in a posture of glad submission to you, our glorious King, overwhelmed by your mercy and your grace at the same time. God, would you do that great work in our hearts this morning? In the name of Jesus, our Savior and King, I pray. Amen. So going back to last week, I don't have time to recap this entire series this morning, but... 
toward the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we, we saw Jesus present us with the danger of appreciating his message without appropriating his message. Some of the most sobering words in all of scripture, the Sermon on the Mount ending with the threat of judgment. The declaration that, that the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom requires a decision. It requires a commitment. Jesus doesn't say, think on me. Jesus doesn't say, pontificate about me, though we should do those things too. Jesus says, follow me. Verse 28 gives us a window into the response of, of the crowds on this mountainside as Jesus steps away from the pulpit in light of his teaching. We're told in chapter seven, verse 28, and when Jesus finished saying these, or finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. We talked about this in week one of this series, and we've talked about it well before this series too as a church, that if Jesus is nothing more than a, than a good moral teacher and philosopher, then, then we can hang on to the red letter statements that we like and discard the rest. We can go back through the sermon podcast archives of this series and just start um, throwing certain podcasts into the trash on our laptops and hold on to others that, that we really dig. But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then whatever he says rings forth with the resounding authority of the divine. You have heard it was said, but I say to you, for the past three months, we've sat at the feet of Jesus and the things that he, he said have rung forth with resounding authority. Same kind of authority with which he said to the 12, follow me. I mean, think about this series. What kind of authority must Jesus have to call people not only to be hearers of his words, but doers of his words? Like what kind of authority must Jesus have to call people to be prepared to suffer for his sake? What kind of authority must Jesus have to declare himself to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament? What kind of authority must Jesus have to say that not everyone who declares him to be Lord shall enter into God's kingdom? Like Jesus cannot simply be some moral teacher and philosopher. He doesn't leave room for that. Based on the the things that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that we've looked at over the last several months, Jesus was either a liar or perhaps a crazy person or perhaps who he said he was, the very son of God. But he doesn't leave space for a good teacher or moral philosopher. And so the first question this morning would be, are we astonished by Jesus's authority? And not just astonished because it's possible to to walk away, I'm sure there were many on that mountainside who walked away astonished at Jesus' teaching who didn't follow him. Are we astonished by Jesus' authority with the kind of astonishment that compels allegiance and trust, a bending of our knee and glad submission to Jesus as king? I said this before in the series, there are many in evangelical circles who are just fine with a life-enhancing Jesus, but not so much a life-altering Jesus which is why I said in the very first week of this series that our study of the Sermon on the Mount, it could cause more people to walk away than our series on Ecclesiastes going back to the summer, unless we know something of the expulsive power of a new affection, a face-to-face -face encounter with the supreme worth of God in Jesus Christ and awakening to the supreme beauty of the one doing the preaching. And so that's in large part what we're going after this morning. That we would, by the time we walk away from this morning's passage together, that we will have had a face-to-face -face encounter with the supreme worth of God in Jesus Christ, 
and we'll have had our hearts awakened to the supreme beauty of the one who's been doing the preaching, not me, Jesus, over the course of the past three months. Chapter eight, verse one, we're told, when he came down from the mountain, Jesus, great crowds followed him. All right, now let me just stop here for a second because verse one of chapter eight has everything to do with why we're closing this series out the way that we are. You might be inclined to ask, why not, why not end a series in the Sermon on the Mount with the close of chapter seven? And in fact, if you read commentaries, they all end with chapter seven, verse 29. Why would we go further than that? And I think the answer is found here in verse one of chapter eight. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him that before they have a chance to disband and go their separate ways, the very crowd that was present for Jesus's teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, is drawn into one more teaching moment in coming down the mountain. They get a visible illustration of what the kingdom of heaven is like, the very kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming for the better part of three chapters. Look at verse two. It says, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That upon finishing the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus descends the mountain and he's immediately approached by a leper, the outcast of society. If you read through the Mosaic law, there, there's a pretty lengthy section involving instructions on how the Israelites were to address ritual impurity in maintaining covenant fellowship with a holy God. Part of that lengthy section has to do with laws regarding leprosy specifically. I, I wanna do something that I don't think we've done before in a context like this, the assembly of God's people. I wanna read through 46 straight verses of the Old Testament. Some of you, you're like, is now the time to go get another cup of coffee? The answer is yes. If you need to take a deep breath and oxygenate your brain, like now would be the, the moment to do that because we're not just gonna read any 46 verses, but we're gonna read 46 verses from the book of Leviticus right now. And here's why we're gonna do that. And let me remind you, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out and profitable to us, all of it, including Leviticus 13. Here's why I wanna do this, because I think if we do this, I think if we read through these 46 verses, I think it'll give us a, a, a better understanding of what it must have been like, one, to be a part of that crowd descending the mountain and seeing this man moving in the direction of Jesus, what it might have been like to be Jesus himself, in engaging this man, what it might have been like to be the leper, to think in those terms, to put ourselves in the shoes of, of the various characters in this moment in Matthew's gospel account, I think reading through this will, will help us to do that. And so here we go. Lord, show our attention spans to be short as they are in our 21st century American church and move in power right now. Leviticus 13 verse one begins this way. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body and if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease." When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. 
And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And if the diseased area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the eruption spreads in the skin after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest. And the priest shall look. And if the eruption has spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous disease. Verse 9. When a man is afflicted with a leprous disease, he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall look. And if there is a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there is raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not shut him up, for he is unclean. And if the leprous disease breaks out in the skin so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look. And if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It is all turned white and he is clean. But when raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. And the priest shall examine the raw flesh and pronounce him unclean. Raw flesh is unclean, for it is a leprous disease. But if the raw flesh recovers and turns white again, then he shall come to the priest, and the priest shall examine him. And if the priest has turned white, or if the disease has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce the diseased person clean. He is clean. How we doing? Verse 18. And if there is in the skin of one's body a boil and it heals, and in the place of the boil there comes a white swelling or a reddish white spot, then it shall be shown to the priest. And the priest shall look, and if it appears deeper than the skin and its hair is turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease that is broken out in the boil. But if the priest examines it and there is no white hair in it and it is not deeper than the skin but is faded, then the priest shall shut him up seven days. And if it spreads in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a disease. But if the spot remains in one place and does not spread, it is the scar of the boil, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. Or when the body has a burn on its skin and the raw flesh of the burn becomes a spot, reddish white or white, the priest shall examine it. And if the hair in the spot has turned white and it appears deeper than the skin, then it is a leprous disease. It is broken out in the burn and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease. But if the priest examines it and there is no white hair in the spot and it is no deeper than the skin but is faded, the priest shall shut him up seven days and the priest shall examine him the seventh day. If it is spreading in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease. But if the spot remains in one place and does not spread in the skin but is faded, it is a swelling from the burn and the priest shall pronounce him clean for it is the scar of the burn." Verse 29, when a man or woman has a disease on the head or the beard, the priest shall examine the disease. And if it appears deeper than the skin and the hair in it is yellow and thin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is an itch, a leprous disease of the head or the beard. And if the priest examines the itching disease and it appears no deeper than the skin and there is no black hair in it, then the priest shall shut up the person with the itching disease for seven days. And on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the disease. If the itch is not spread and there is in it no yellow hair and the itch appears to be no deeper than the skin, then he shall shave himself. But the itch he shall not shave. 
and the priest shall shut up the person with the itching disease for another seven days. We're almost there. Verse 34. And on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the itch. And if the itch is not spread in the skin and it appears to be no deeper than the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the itch spreads in the skin after his cleansing, then the priest shall examine him. And if the itch is spread in the skin, the priest need not seek for the yellow hair. He is unclean. But if in his eyes the itch is unchanged and black hair has grown in it, the itch is healed and he is clean and the priest shall pronounce him clean. When a man or a woman has spots on the skin of the body, white spots, the priest shall look and if the spots on the skin of the body are of a dull white, it is leucoderma that is broken out in the skin, he is clean. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. That's funny. He is clean. And if a man's hair falls out from his forehead, he has baldness of the forehead. He is clean. If you didn't think Leviticus had humor in it, you're wrong. Verse 42, but if there is on the bald head or the bald forehead a reddish white diseased area, it is a leprous disease breaking out on his bald head or his bald forehead. Then the priest shall examine him and if the disease swelling is reddish white on his bald head or on his bald forehead, like the appearance of leprous disease in the skin of the body, he is a leprous man, he is unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. His disease is on his head. May the Lord bless you as you leave this place for sitting under his word in that way. And I mean that. I want us to read all that. And then I want us to get into our minds, particularly if you're a parent. What kind of shame have you perhaps felt when your kids had something as simple as the chicken pox that you knew was gonna be gone in a week? Imagine the kind of shame that someone with leprosy would have experienced in light of all of this writing having to do with their very disease. I mean, It's not even as though it was written with the leper in mind in terms of its language, right? Pretty intense lingo. Eruption spreading in the skin. The swelling of raw flesh. Hair growing out of boils and burns. My guess is that many of us in this room probably would not have signed up for the role of priest going back to the days of Moses. Listen to what Leviticus 13 goes on to say, and consider what it must have been like to be a leper as you hear these words. Verses 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Like, could there possibly be a more humiliating or lonely life? In coming remotely close to others, a leper had to shout out at the top of his lungs, unclean, unclean, so as to warn others of the danger of his close proximity. Or how about this one? If a leper was upwind, he had to remain at a distance of 50 yards, which gives us an indication of the stench of his disease. In the words of the famous Jewish historian Josephus, lepers were treated, quote, as if they were, in effect, dead men. In fact, they were 
They weren't just treated solely on the basis of their physical condition, but also their spiritual condition. There were stories in Israel's history of people receiving leprosy as a judgment for their sin. People like Miriam in Numbers chapter 12, or Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, or Gehazi in 2 Kings chapter 5, so that it was assumed that if you had leprosy, it was due to some personal sin on your part. That Not only were you physically sick, but you had somehow grieved God with the very way that you had lived your life and and this was your lot as a result of it. Coming back to Matthew chapter eight, you can just hear the humiliating cries of this leprous man forced to declare himself unclean, creating disruption as the crowds of people came down the mountain, likely parting like the Red Sea so as not to come within arm's length of this man. You can just picture the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus has been talking about for three chapters, looking upon the man with disdain. I thank God that I'm not like this man, completely blind to the fact that their very own inward condition was one and the same with the leper's outward condition. The inside of the cup, unclean, filled with greed and self-indulgence. The leprosy of the heart, you might say. In fact, I think we're meant to see something of our own spiritual poverty when we gaze at the hopeless condition of the leper in Matthew chapter eight. Kent Hughes in his commentary says this. He says, Christ meeting the leper as he descended the mount was no chance encounter. It was, I love this, divinely choreographed. We see in Matthew chapter eight, not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Move as Jesus authenticates and illustrates his message. And from the perspective of the leper and ours as well, he says, we see what is involved in obtaining and experiencing the healing touch of Christ. These few verses tell us how to obtain and experience that touch. For one, it requires an awareness of one's condition like the leper in this morning's passage, an awareness of one's need for cleansing. But not just an awareness, but also a self-abandonment, a declarative, I can't do it myself. I can't make myself clean. Comes back to the very first words of Jesus' sermon, which makes this a beautiful bookend. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me present it this way. In what kind of state did the leper find himself as Jesus descended that mountain? I think the answer is the perfect state to receive mercy and grace so that the kingdom of heaven is not for the self-sufficient. The kingdom of heaven is not for the self-righteous. The kingdom of heaven is not for the self-indulgent. The kingdom of heaven is for the self-abandoning, for those who see their desperate need for a hope outside of themselves. I mean, you even see it in the posture of the leper, right? He knelt before Jesus, we're told. He fell on his face. He laid prostrate before the Son of God. And he demonstrated faith in crying out, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I believe you can do it. Notice that Christianity is incredibly personal on the basis of verse two. You can make me clean. I love that. It's one thing to believe that Jesus came to save sinners, John 3, 16 language, for God so loved the world. It's an altogether different thing to swim in the deep, deep waters of Jesus loves me, this I know. So that I would ask, when's the last time you meditated on the deep, deep love that Jesus has for you? 
Because there is no deeper theology than Jesus loves me, this I know. You can make me clean. Verse three, love this. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. In Mark's account of this healing, he tells us something that Matthew doesn't tell us, namely that Jesus was moved with pity. That word pity coming from the Greek word splonknizomai, which means the inward parts, the vital organs, the entrails. It's literally a a gut-wrenching emotion, something welling up in the deepest seat of Jesus' emotions in this moment as he looks at this man. And it leads him to do what many of us would never do, to reach out and touch the physical expression of Leviticus chapter 13. Go back to that language, eruptions spreading in the skin, the swelling of raw flesh, hair growing out of boils and burns. I mean, certainly Jesus could have healed this man without touching him, could he not? He's the son of God simply by speaking with the same divine authority that he had just spoken at the top of that mountain. He could have done that. And yet what does he do? He stretches out his hand and touches the man. The natural instinct of a loving savior, I would say, having come to make the unclean clean, that the one who speaks with the authority of the divine, chapters five through seven, he's the one who touches the untouchable by his grace, chapter eight. As Jonathan Edwards once said, some of you have heard this sermon around here before, or this quote, I should say. In Jesus, there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Edwards says it this way. He says, there do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension. There meet in Jesus Christ infinite justice and infinite grace. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite glory and lowest humility. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. There meet in the person of Christ the deepest reverence toward God and equality with God. He says there are conjoined in the person of Christ infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under sufferings of evil. In the person of Christ are conjoined an exceeding spirit of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. In the person of Christ are conjoined absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. Resignation. In Christ, do meet together self-sufficiency and an entire trust and reliance on God. That's the kind of Jesus we encounter in Matthew's gospel account. One of infinite justice and infinite grace. One of infinite glory and infinite humility. One of infinite majesty and infinite meekness. Astonishing authority, going back to the end of chapter seven, and tender mercy in touching the leper in chapter eight. Like, that's your Jesus, Christian. He's the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain. He's both. To to use the language of this morning's passage, he's both the King who astonishes and the Savior who cleanses. And don't miss it. The cleansing of the leper is a sign. It's a sign of the far deeper cleansing that Jesus would accomplish for our sins. Coming back to that Leviticus 13 language, let me read it again. Not all 46 verses, just verses 45 and 46. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. That's the language of mourning. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. 
And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. It's exactly where our sin leaves us. Outside the camp. Unclean and alone. Our spiritual condition far worse than the physical one described in Leviticus chapter 13. With its raw flesh and boils and burns. But here's the good news of the gospel. And so many of you in this room know it. That's not where Jesus leaves us. Right? Hebrews 13, 12, I love the language. Says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate, outside the camp, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That the gospel declares to us that Jesus was led outside of the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha, where he bore the leprosy of our sin in his body on the tree that we might be made clean. That his blood, think about this, This is amazing. His blood has brought us not just inside the camp, but into the holy places, the author of Hebrews tells us. That the veil has been torn. That we have access to the living God as children of God. We're not only meant to be astonished by Jesus' authority, we're also meant to be moved by his tender mercy and grace. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you're not a Christian, we talked about this in week one of this series. That's the appropriate response to the Sermon on the Mount. Poverty of spirit. Jesus, I can't do it myself. I can't make myself clean through good works. My only hope is for you to make me clean. And I love that if that's your heart's cry, Jesus says, I'll do it. Be clean. And if you are a Christian, what what do you think the cry of the leper was in response to this healing. After shouting at the top of his lungs for years, unclean, unclean. My guess is that he cried out using those same worn out lungs, going back to last week. I've been washed. Wonder of wonders that I've been made clean. Me of all people, can you believe that? And I would say, If that's the appropriate response to a physical healing, my goodness, how much greater should our response be to the cleansing of our souls? It's the song of the kingdom that Jesus has been talking about for for weeks now, birthed out of astonishment at his mercy and grace. Wonder of wonders that I've been made clean. I'm a Christian, me, untouchable me of all people. That's the posture of the poor in spirit. Because of Jesus, he did it, not me. That I could be a part of this family and be made clean and be brought into the holy places because of Jesus. Wonder of wonders that the authoritative king at the top of the mountain is the cleansing savior at the bottom of the mountain. That's the Jesus we're gonna worship. In these moments to come, we're gonna do that in a multitude of ways. We're gonna bring our song to him and sing of of his kingship and his saving work. We couldn't declare him to be king apart from his saving work on the cross, his cleansing work. And so we'll also have an opportunity to worship through the receiving of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing Jesus' broken body, and we dip that in the cup representing his shed blood. I just invite you, as you come, to receive of those elements this morning that, that you would pause for a moment and consider the words of Leviticus 13. And think of the work that Jesus has done in your life to make you clean. And then receive those elements with joy, with absolute wonder and joy.